Church family, let me invite you to take God's Word and join me this morning in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 8 this morning. Matthew 6, verses 5 to 8. Last week, if you were with us, or just maybe by way of reminder, last week in verse 1 of chapter 6, we find that Jesus there gives a warning. A warning to His people, to His disciples, of how we should or should not practice our righteousness. He says there in verse 1, to not practice our righteousness before men. And so then as you move throughout now these uh, subsequent verses, what we find is that Jesus is going to give examples Uh, Three very practical, particular examples of what He means when He says, do not practice your righteousness to be seen by men. So last week, in the text together, verses 1-4, to we saw that Jesus is addressing the issue of giving, and and specifically, giving to the poor. We do not give, Jesus says, so as to be seen by others. Because if that's what we do, then whatever applause we get from them, whatever commendation we get from those watching eyes, that is all the reward that a person has. Instead, we saw last week that we are called to be those who give for God's glory with the understanding that we gain a better reward. And now, as we come to today's text, chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, Jesus is going to move to a second example of what He means there in verse 1 by not practicing your righteousness to be seen by others. And we come this morning to the example of prayer. And actually, if you let your eyes just kind of fall on the text, starting in verse 5, all the way down to verse 15, what you find is that over the next several weeks, we're going to be thinking about prayer. You you see the language of the model prayer or the Lord's prayer as it is often called. But this morning, in verses 5 to 8, we come here to an initial instruction about prayer. We come to find in the text, what is prayer that pleases God? That's what's before us in verses 5 to 8. Coming to this passage of Scripture and thinking specifically about prayer, it gives us the opportunity to think particularly about our own personal and even church corporate prayer lives. It gives us the opportunity to ask some questions to our own hearts about our prayer lives. Questions like, am I a person of prayer? Am I a person of prayer or just a person who occasionally says prayers? What is my motivation in praying? Questions like, when I pray, where is my trust? Questions like, is there a biblical pattern of prayer that helps give some better definition and life to my prayer and communion with the Lord? My hope, beloved, for us this morning, certainly in the verses that will follow in the weeks ahead, my prayer for us 
is that we would come to God's Word, that we would drink deeply, that we would apply practically, and that we would be gripped by. Gripped by the beauty and the necessity and the privilege of prayer. Have you stopped? Have you stopped recently to consider the beauty of prayer? To to consider the necessity of prayer? Have you stopped to consider what a privilege it is that the sovereign God of the universe who holds all things together by the Word of His power not only calls you to pray, but delights when you do? Have you stopped to consider that as of late? My prayer is that as we think about these texts together, that we would deeply commune with the Lord through prayer that pleases God. Let's start that this morning in verses 5 to 8. Look at the text with me. When you pray, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So we want to think about prayer that pleases God. Let me draw out a couple of truths from the text for us this morning. First one in verses 5 and 6. The second one in verses 7 and 8. Two truths about prayer that pleases God. Number one, prayer that pleases God is not self-seeking. Prayer that pleases God is not self-seeking. In fact, as as we're going to find out, prayer at the end of the day, it really has a lot less to do with us and a lot more to do with our Father who is in heaven. When we pray, we should not be self-seeking. Verse 5, when you pray, we might as well just stop right there. When you pray, you recall that language because back up in verse 2, Jesus used the same language when He said, when you give to the poor. So just as in verse 2 with giving, now in verse 5 with praying, Jesus expects that His people are going to pray. Martin Luther said this, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to make shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. Whatever we might do, Whatever they might be saying about us, let it be that we are a people of prayer. Because all throughout Scripture, all throughout the history of the church, God's people are a praying people. 
When you make your way to the patriarchs of the Old Testament, all the way through the Psalms, all the way through the prophets, as you make your way to the age of the apostles and the church, over the last 2,000 years of church history, all the way to Jesus Himself, what we find is that those who are in a relationship with God, one of the key aspects of that relationship is that they will be a people who are praying to their Father. It is not then an unreasonable expectation on God's part that the people that He has called to Himself, redeemed by the blood of His Son, and sealed for eternity by His Spirit. It is not an unreasonable expectation that God would have for His people to talk to Him, to commune with Him, to pray. In the same way that it is not an unreasonable expectation for your spouse to expect that you will talk that you will communicate, that there will be communion and fellowship with you too. So God expects His people to pray. So when you pray, it's not up for discussion. It's not up for debate. It's not if you pray. It's when you pray. Beyond the fact that God expects it, that He delights in it, beyond the fact that there are numerous and numerous examples throughout Scripture of people in prayer, frankly, Scripture just commands it. Over and over and over in God's Word, it comes to us as an imperative. Hey, pray. Do this. This is not an option. It is a call and command from the Lord. Throughout the Psalms, these songs that are so often the prayers of David and the other psalmists, we are called there to call out to God. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray, imperative, at all times. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, imperative once again, pray without ceasing. Over and over and over. It is inescapable. God's Word calls the people of God to be people of prayer. What is prayer? What is it? What does it mean to pray? I'm going to save the lion's share of, uh, of that question and answer as we get into next week's text. But let me just simply state this. Just a brief definition of prayer here. Prayer is an act of fellowship and worship whereby we talk to God. I think sometimes, maybe in our minds, prayer is a lot more technical than that. Sometimes we make prayer a lot more difficult than that. But I think the reality, as we see it in Scripture, is that prayer is an act of fellowship and worship unto God whereby we just simply talk to God. Again, maybe a bit more 
on the definition of that next week. But back to kind of the point in verse 5, when you pray. As Jesus sets forth the expectation that His people will pray, He goes on in verse 5 to show us that prayer which pleases God is not self-seeking. Look back in the text with me. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Once again, he calls out the hypocrites. Just as he did back up in verse 2, now the same language in verse 5. The hypocrite. The one who wears the mask. The one who simply just plays a part. An actor on a stage. The people here in verse 5 have the same problem as those people back in verse 2. Because what they are doing, they are doing only in public to be seen doing it publicly. To be seen by men. Their prayer is reserved not for the ears of God, but for the eyes of men. They pray where? They pray in the synagogues and they pray on the street corners. Jewish people had traditionally three times of of prayer every day. Morning, afternoon, and evening. If you were in Jerusalem and you could get to the temple to pray, that that was good. That was the right thing to do. If you were... Uh, not in Jerusalem, if you were outside of Jerusalem, maybe you would go to a local place of, uh, of gathering, of worship in the local synagogue. And you would gather there at the time of prayer when maybe a lot of other people are gathered there. And there you would do your praying. However, if you timed it just right, like if you really timed it just right, You could be out in public running some errands, just kind of visiting with the neighbors, whatever the case may be, and oh, you check your watch or your sundial or whatever, and you realize, wait a minute, it is the time of afternoon prayer, and wouldn't wouldn't you know it, I'm stuck out here in public. In front of everybody, I can't get home, I can't get to the temple, I can't get to the synagogue, so let me just hit my knees on my face at this crowded street corner where everybody's going to see me. Where everybody's going to hear. Everybody's going to notice, they're going to hear these long, lengthy, wordy, theological sounding prayers, and they are going to think, my goodness, that is the greatest person of prayer I have ever seen or heard in my life. They're going to love it when I hit my knees on the street corner and pray. What does Jesus say about that kind of prayer in verse 5? It's self-seeking. It is self-seeking. It wants to be seen. It wants to be applauded by men. It is hypocritical and it has as its reward only whatever praise other people give. The self-seeking prayer has no desire to privately commune with God. Its only desire is to be seen by men. The self-seeking prayer does not seek to worship God, but it seeks to be worshipped by men. The self-seeking prayer cares nothing about God's glory, but only about the brief, fleeting, false 
glory that comes through the applause of men. The self-seeking prayer makes a big show of prayer in public while neglecting prayer in private. Jesus says that kind of prayer is hypocritical. It's just a show. Just a mask that you're putting on in that moment and it carries no real reward. Charles Spurgeon said this, Lord, never let me be so profane to pray to Thee with the intent of getting praise for myself. So Jesus then, in verse 6 now, offers instruction to us about how do we avoid self-seeking prayer. Look in verse 6. But you... The the attention clearly shifts here. We're not talking about the hypocrites on the street corner anymore, but you. Again, with this expectation that we will pray hanging over us, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What does Jesus mean here? Is He condemning public prayer? Praying in public. Well, we know that's not the reality. Jesus Himself would pray publicly. We would see His disciples. Other saints do the same. Does Jesus mean here that the only suitable location for prayer is behind a closed door in an inner room? No, I don't think He means that either. If we are to pray at all times, then we will often find ourselves praying outside of an inner room outside of a closed door. So then, just like last Sunday with the instruction about giving, the point is very similar, is it not? When you pray, don't make a big deal about it. Just pray. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't practice, verse 1, your righteousness to be seen by men. Do not talk about how much you pray. Do not broadcast your prayer life. What you prayed for, for whom you prayed, or how long you prayed. Avoid social media posts that say, you know, well, I was out on my prayer walk for three hours this morning. People don't need to know that. They don't need to know if you're prayer walking. If you want a prayer walk, great. Prayer walk to the glory of God. I don't need to know that you prayer walked for three hours this morning. Just pray. Meet with your Father. Does it matter if people know that you have been in prayer? Beware of this because once they like your Facebook post about being on a three-hour prayer walk yesterday, you know what they're going to do? They're going to quickly keep scrolling. And they're going to like another post about cute puppies and another one about homemade chocolate chip cookies right after that. And where is your reward? It's gone. It's gone. And that little click, that little like, that's it. That's your reward. Flashes, you feel good because you got another like on the Facebook post and then it's gone as they keep mindlessly scrolling through their Facebook feed. Beware of this. And instead, verse 6, what does Jesus say? 
But when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Prayer is to whom? It is to your Father. It is not for the eyes of others. It is to God, not unto men. Remember last week, everything we do, all of our lives is lived quorum Deo before the face of God. God is in the secret places, verse 6 is telling us. And in that secret place, He is to be the object of our prayers. God is the lone recipient of our prayer. And, and, and more on this, I think, next Sunday. But God is the lone recipient of our prayer because God is the only one who can do anything about that thing for which we pray. That's why God is the lone recipient of our prayer. Because it is only God who can save. It is only God who can heal. It is only God who can convict. It is only God who can provide. It is only God who can forgive. And if you pray to be seen by others, then essentially your prayer is directed to them and what can they do for you? They can't heal. They can't save. They can't forgive. They can't ultimately provide. If you have as the object, the recipient of your prayer, other people, then what confidence do you have in prayer? You have none. Because if you're just praying to be seen or heard by others, you can then have no expectation that your prayer will be answered. And what a sad and fruitless exercise to pray knowing that this prayer is not going to be answered. However, look at the end of verse 6. God, who is in secret, He meets you there at the end of verse 6 and does what? Your Father, who sees what is done in secret, watch this confidence. He will reward you. Now we got something, right? Now we have some hope in our prayer life. Now we have some confidence that my prayer is going beyond just merely this room. It's, it's, it's leaving the walls and the ceiling. And it is ascending to the very throne of heaven. And God, who sees what is done in secret, oh, because He's a good God. Because He loves you. Because He delights to give good things to His children. At the end of verse 6, He will do what? He will reward you. In what way or ways does God reward the prayers offered in secret? It doesn't say specifically here in verse 6. However, when God answers our secret prayer, is that not reward? 
Do, do this also. Tur- turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. How else might God reward the prayer prayed to Him in secret? We know that God answers prayer and there is certainly reward in that. How else though might God work to reward our prayer? Romans chapter 8, look down to verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Here in Romans 8, I think we see a couple of other rewards to our prayer. Number one here, we see that we are rewarded by being reminded of and comforted by God's presence. And secondly, we are rewarded by the hope of eternal life. When you commune with God in prayer, when you do it not to be seen by men, not to seek self, but to seek God, what happens is that we are reminded of and comforted by God's presence. We are reminded that we are adopted into His family. Verse 16, we are reminded by His Spirit who lives inside of us that as we're praying, His Spirit is reminding us and saying to us, you are a child of God. And when we pray, don't we need to remember that? When we've been praying for that same thing over and over and over and over again, and God is silent, don't we need to know in that moment that we are adopted children of the King? We we need that. Don't we also need the hope of eternal life? If you're heirs, you're heirs of God, you're heirs of Christ, And you're going to be glorified with Him. Church, surely that is better than any commendation you might receive from other people. Surely this is better than the very fleeting praise we receive from men. Surely this is better than our own glory. Church, Prayer that is pleasing to God is not self-seeking. And then secondly, prayer that is pleasing to God is not self-reliant. Prayer that is pleasing to God is not self-seeking, nor is it self-reliant. Verse 7, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for what? For their Many words. Jesus here, verse 7, the instruction is don't heap up meaningless phrases, meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Throughout really the history of, uh, of the world, there's been a common theme surrounding the prayers of lost people to their false gods. And that common theme has been that of meaningless repetition and many 
words. You get at least a couple examples of this in Scripture. Let's just look at one of them. 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, men, by, by the way, if this is not familiar to you, you have a lot of reading to do this afternoon before discipleship group tonight. All right, 1 Kings 18. You remember the story. It's Elijah the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. We're going to find out whose God is the one true and living God. Enough of this. Enough of this division. Enough of divided hearts. Let's settle this thing right here. 1 Kings chapter 18. You remember that uh, the the contest essentially is we're going to build an altar. We're going to throw a sacrifice up there. And whichever God consumes that sacrifice with fire, that's the one God. And everybody's like, sure, sounds like a great idea. uh, Chapter 18, look down to verse 26. These are the prophets of Baal. They took the ox which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. Verse 27, Elijah is just wrong for this. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, call out with a loud voice. You seem to get louder, guys. Call out with a loud voice for he's a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside. He's in the restroom, maybe. Or is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered. And no one paid attention. All day long. They jump. They scream. They cut. They beg. They plead. No one answers. They think that if they'll just shout loud enough, that they, they think if they'll just seem penitent enough, they think if they heap up just a whole lot of words, that that's going to awaken and unleash the fire of Baal. But no one hears, no one comes, no one answers. And back in verse 7, Jesus is saying, don't be like that. Don't do that. Don't pray these meaningless, repetitive prayers thinking that that's going to move the heart of God. What does He say at the end of verse 7? They suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Our prayer should not depend on our ability to string together the right combination of words. Our prayer and the answer to prayer doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. And beloved, this ought to be a comfort for you. Because sometimes, and we don't talk about this, but sometimes when you pray, nothing hardly comes out. And in that moment, we wonder, I think, 
Does God care about that? Does God hear that? I mean, surely, I'm coming before the sovereign of the universe. Surely, I got to get something out of, my, out of my mouth more than just God help me. When we do that, we think we, we will be heard for our many words. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. You don't have to be like that. When we pray, we don't need to pre-plan how we can create wordy prayers, flowery prose, or impressive theological statements. I don't think God cares a whole lot about those things. God cares most about a broken and contrite heart. That's what He doesn't despise. Not to say that long prayers and deep theological backing behind those prayers, it doesn't mean that that is displeasing to God. But you don't have to pray that way, saints. You can squeak out of your mouth, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And God loves you. God delights in you in that moment. God hears you, sees you, cares about you, and is going to move for your good even when that's all you can squeak out of your mouth. Because it doesn't depend on self. Let your prayer be from your heart. A free, flowing, pouring out of your heart to God. Look in verse 8. Don't be like them. Why? Why? For, here's why, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. It is haunting there in 1 Kings. No one heard. No one showed up. No one answered. But your Father, dear saint, there's that language again, right? Ten times in chapter 6, your Father. Not your distant, cold CEO. Not merely just a Creator who made you and then walked away to let you figure it out on your own. But your Father. Good. Kind. Loving Father. What does He know? He knows what you need before you even ask it. Many words, therefore, are not necessary. Why? Because we don't inform God about anything. Omniscience learns nothing. That God is omniscient means that not only is He all wise, but He knows all things and has known all things perfectly well before the foundation of the world. We don't inform God about anything. He's all-knowing. We don't make Him aware. And so in prayer, we don't rely on self and our ability to unlock God's power by the right combination of words. In prayer, our hope is not in self, but in God. Our hope is in God who delights in you, beloved. He delights in you. And then, He's bound by His covenant promises to you to provide, to meet your needs, and to be with you. Saints, do you, do you find comfort 
here? You should. You should. I know that there is something in us that thinks when I come to pray, I need to have my act together. I'm talking to God. So often, the prayers in the Bible come from people who don't have their act together. Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. That's real life stuff. God these people hate me, and I am despairing of life. Will you help me? And God rewards that prayer. Because it doesn't depend on self, it depends on God. Find comfort in that church. And let that bolster your prayer life. Let me ask and answer very quickly one Final question. I think that naturally arises out of verse 8. If God knows what I need before I pray, then what's the question? Then why pray? Why do it? Why pray if God already knows what I need? Well, the basic Sunday school answer is because He told you to. All right, But we probably need a little more than that, maybe. So, why pray at all if God knows what we need before we ask? Because. Here's what prayer does, among so many things. Prayer draws you deeper into the heart and the will of God so that in prayer you learn to hope in God. As you pray and as you commune with God, it draws you into a deeper communion and fellowship with God so that you learn to hope, not in self, but in God. That's why we pray. Even when God is 20,000 light years ahead of us. Let me close with this. John Calvin answered that question this way. Every word of this, hang on to it, church. Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to Him, or of exciting Him to do His duty, or of urging Him as though He were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek Him. That they may exercise their faith in meditating on His promises. That they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into His bosom. In a word, that they may declare that from Him alone they hope. From Him alone they expect, both for themselves and for others, all good things. God Himself, on the other hand, has purposed freely and without being asked to bestow blessings upon us, but He promises that He will grant them to our prayers. We must therefore maintain both of these truths that He freely anticipates our wishes and yet that we obtain by prayer what we ask. Is there a mystery to that? Absolutely. But here's where we land in that mystery. That even though God is omniscient and sovereign, knows what we need before we ask, when we pray, when we pray, we are drawn into the heart and the will of God. We learn to hope in Him. Our faith is renewed and restored, and God, who never 
sleeps, who never goes away, who always attends to our prayers, God will reward the prayer that seeks His glory, communion and fellowship with Him. And so saints, let's covenant before God that maybe afresh and anew that we will be people of prayer. In the coming weeks, as Jesus teaches us how to pray, let's commit that to the very best of our ability, we're going to pray and ask the Lord to fan into flame holy desires to commune with Him in prayer. And be comforted, church, that God loves you and delights in you. Let's pray together. God, there is much to consider in this text. There is much to apply. We can only in this moment scratch the very surface of the beauty and the depth of prayer. God, thank You that You tell us how we might pray in such a way. God, that it is pleasing to You and that it merits a better reward. So, God, You know Your people in this room. God, You know their needs, their hurts. God, You know where they need to be binded up, Father, in faithfulness and love from You. God, You know how they need to be provided for. God, You know the deep agony in their hearts. God, You know their sorrow, their longing. God, You know and You care about even the fact that some have prayed and You, for whatever good reason, God, You have been silent. God, You know that they wonder. God, You know that they believe, but they have unbelief. Oh God, help them. Draw them. Awaken in them, oh God, a glorious picture of what it means to pray not for self-glory, and not upon self-reliance. God, to pray to You. A God who knows what we need before we ask. What a God You are. God, how omniscient You are. Father, let these things cause us to run to You in prayer. So Lord, do Your work by Your Spirit into our hearts. Grow a harvest of fruit and righteousness. And we ask and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
church God is.